it's so important to have someone that will give you the chance and believes in you. Um, you know, some people have a lot of talent, but just never get the chance. Today's guest, Elise, is the VP of Success and Support at Gorgeous. And of all of the candidates that I've placed over the years, she's probably the biggest success story. She and I first jumped on a call back in 2020 when I was hiring for a bunch of roles for Gorgeous. She had actually applied for a data analyst role, but within minutes I'm pitching her on this management position on the success team that I was also hiring for. Fast forward three years and she's been promoted three times. She leads a global 70 person team and she's been instrumental in helping the company grow from 13 million to 50 million ARR in that time. Elise is an inspiration to young professionals, but to women in particular, and she's an excellent reminder that your circumstances can change quickly if you follow your heart. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I've enjoyed putting it together. And thanks for listening. Hi. Hey. How's it going? I'm good. How are you feeling? Good. Um, just work has been nuts. And then uh, we were at the Beyonce concert last night. <gasps> it was amazing. But she started an hour late and we didn't get home till 2 a.m. Oh my God. And then I had a meeting at seven and I've been in back to backs. So I'm just like, I'm like annoyed by what a deep issues. <laughs> no. Well, thank you for making time for that. Oh my God, of course. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, cool. So I wanted to, I want to talk about your background before getting into customer success at Gorgeous. Yeah. So I started, um, so during college, I interned at Morgan Stanley Smith Barney for a financial analyst. It was like some like tiny Excel modeling, some paperwork, um, and then just kind of like learning more about what a financial planner does. And, you know, it's like managing a book of business, customers, working with them on their different financial needs. So that was fun to learn about the different financial products, what that role looked like super, um, you know, people oriented. After college, I worked at JP Morgan Chase and their corporate investment banks. I started in futures and options um, operations. And so what that really meant was like in the back office clearing trades, it was not um, by any means the most glamorous job. But what was so cool about it is I really got to see behind the scenes like how the futures and options um, trading process took place. And in Excel, I could use VBA to automate their processes. So I was really process driven. Mm. And from there, I learned how to automate their processes. Okay. And then got transferred to London to do um, over-the-counter derivatives work. And again, it was just like learning how to operationalize and automate some of the processes that the bank around those products. Mm -hmm. um, and then I went to Stitch Fix. I started as an analyst doing Excel modeling for their staffing plans. Interesting. Yeah. It quickly grew into owning the finance budget for the customer support org, which was 300 people. And then that quickly grew into, okay, run the operations and run the strategy um, for that org. Do you remember some of the like questions or um, yeah. challenges that you were solving? 
One of my favorite challenges um, that I solved at Stitch Fix was what is the five-year plan for the customer support organization? Mm. And I mean, think about that. Like you could go, anything could happen in the world. I think it was 2018 or 2019 at the time when I was answering this question. Um, and so what I started doing was um, I knew what we had, right? And it was, you know, a couple hundred people and they scale at a certain rate with the amount of, um, of customers that we serve. And so I, my goal was to reduce cost, but also keep people happy. Mm. So I started like looking at different cost optimization strategies and then also pulling people. Um, and then I found that people wanted more flexibility, right? Um, and then I was like, well, if they have more flexibility, are they less efficient? Mm. So started kind of going down that path. And then I created um, all these different scenarios. Like scenario one is we have an office in Austin, Texas, and then another office in the Philippines. And these tickets go there and these tickets go there. Another scenario, they work from home. Another scenario, this. And then basically I had to make it way more high level. I got to present to Mike Smith, um, Katrina and Paul Yee, who at the time was the CFO and really show them like, hey, here are the different paths. Um, here's what I recommend. Uh, and where we landed was this uh, hybrid model actually before COVID happened, um, which was like, yeah. And it was great because it reduced the cost. It reduced um how much uh, space the company needed to take up and it made people happy. Um, so we ended up reducing costs significantly um, prior to even COVID and kind mm. of already taking that strategy. So when COVID actually happened, they called me up and were like, we are so glad um, about that project. Yeah. So that's like an example of a strategy project that you might take on. Maybe it's yeah. not as long-term, but it's a big question like that. And you kind of have to just start from scratch and figure out how to answer it. And how do you measure productivity and how do you measure happiness? So on the productivity side, um, we had, I mean, it was 300 people. So we had uh, different data tracking sure. and I could see in the platform, we were actually using Zendesk, a gorgeous competitor, ironically. Um, so I could see how many tickets agents were solving. And then I knew what days they were working from home and not. So I, mm -hmm. I could tell, um, when they were more and less efficient. Sure, there were some people, of course, right? But for the most part, um, it was the same. And the cost savings on the other side for the business was so high that, yeah, you could take a dent in efficiency, right? Mm. Um, so we measured productivity. Um, and then on the happiness side, it was just through employee surveys like yeah. ENPs. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, so fast forward and you and I get on a call yeah. <laughs> and you had applied. So this is end of 2020. Uh, Gorgeous was doing what, like 12 million annual recurring revenue or so around then. Yeah. 12 million. You had applied for a operations growth operations analyst role, which makes a lot of sense with your background. Yeah. But you and I were talking and I knew that they needed a manager of activation, which is essentially onboarding. And I was like, okay, Elise, I need to put you on the success team. <laughs> I want you to be the manager of activation. And so, um, what, what was it that attracted you to this role? Yeah. So 
I am. I a part of my role is always going to be data. I love it. So that's why I initially applied to that role. I was like, I love data. I can do that. Yeah. But what then got me into success was I also love people, right? Mm-hmm. And I think when you're in a more operational role, now it depends it what company you go to. But at Gorgeous, like if you choose a role in success um, or go-to-market operations is what we call it, um, you are doing a lot of data analysis, execution, mm-hmm. and working with people. Mm-hmm. And so I really found that um, for my personality, I really like a variety of tasks. And what I love about success is you never know what's going to come at you or what you're going to have to do, what problem you're going to have to analyze, who you're going to have to talk to. Um, And so it was really, it's been really fun and rewarding to not only get the time to do these analyses, um, but also get to hop on a call with a customer Mm. and see the benefit or go start executing on some of those insights. Yeah. Um, So I think if you love data and want to be immersed in data, um, you know, for most of your role, then a true like data ops role makes sense for you. Whereas if you want more variety, um, you know, it obviously depends on the go-to-market operations role. Yeah. Um, customer success can make sense for you then. Yeah. And then, so you're the VP of success and support. What does that mean? Yeah, so as the VP of success and support, basically any team that is post-sale, so after the sale, uh, reports into me. So what I'm really focused on is after the sale, what happens to the customer? What's their journey like? And how do I take that customer journey, it's 12,000 customers, um, and basically optimize their experience for retention and growth? And so are you talking to these customers one-on-one? Good question. So for our highest ACV average contract value customers, that's basically our customers that spend the most with us. It's some of our biggest brands. We have a high touch approach, which is your classic customer success team. So a customer success manager will manage about 50 to 80 customers um, at Gorgeous. It depends anywhere you go. And they're really focused on how do I drive loyalty and product adoption uh, with these customers to make sure they feel really good with Gorgeous and the Mm. products that we're offering and then upsell them at the right time. That's 2,000 of our customers. 10,000 of our customers um, are smaller average contract value. So it probably doesn't make sense and they probably don't want to talk to someone So we actually have a scaled approach in product and through customer uh, email campaigns where we basically are influencing them and nudging them along the customer journey um, to, again, drive that retention. I mean, when working with Roman to build out your team, I know we've talked about one of the things that's made it so hard is that he's such a stickler for finding people that can write their own SQL scripts and can really get deep into the numbers, which you don't always find that in candidates with traditional success backgrounds, which is why like your investment banking background and ops background was perfect for this. Yeah. And a lot of times when I'm talking about building customer success teams and what type of profile is going to be most valuable 
at an organization. I kind of give gorgeous as an example on one end of the spectrum and then like strong DM, which is enterprise security where, you know, they have 12 month long deployments is on the other end where yes, you need to know data and, but it's, it's a different type of CS motion than gorgeous where you're working with so many customers at once. Yes. Do you think that that focus on data is unique? Yes. When we're hiring for customer success leaders or customer success managers, some of the first questions I always ask, if it's not already stated on their resume, is, okay, how many customers were you working with? Mm. And what was the average contract value? Yeah. Um, And then also what type of customer and what did your processes look like, right? Because that is what is so challenging about customer success. I'll go meet other customer success leaders and our jobs couldn't be some, our jobs couldn't be more different, right? right? right. They're spending all their time and customer calls. Um, And so for us, like we're definitely at this end of the spectrum where it's 12,000 merchants. So you can't talk to everyone. You actually have to figure out with data how to have a smart, savvy, scaled approach. Um, Whereas if you have 10 customers all at, I don't know, 50 million, that must be nice. Um, But at that rate, you know, you are probably only doing customer specific conversations and work. Right, right, right. Yeah. And then typically they have other departments that are doing more of the heavy analysis and and technical integrations and things like that. Totally. And what does your day-to-day look like? I would say I would treat it more on a quarterly cadence because I think my role really depends on where we are within the year and the quarter and planning. So when I started um, as a manager, right, it was like more within the week kind of figuring out execution and coaching. And then as I've moved into director and VP now, um, most of my role is actually figuring out what's going to happen next year Mm. and how do I make sure um, the team is all kind of going in that direction, right? And so um, I heard something, it was like on Y Combinator, but something to the effect of with the um, extremely fast fighter pilots they actually have um, autonomous driving, like because the pilot couldn't possibly move that fast to huh. make those snap decisions because the planes move that fast. However, right. the pilot um, does guide the plane over time, like in a minute, I want to be approximately here, right? Huh. And so that is a great analogy for how leaders should work um, and for my role. So, yes, like the majority of my time is probably spent doing long-term planning and then meeting with the leaders of each function. So the head of onboarding, the head of success, the head of support, the head of scale, the head of account management to essentially make sure, hey, are we still in line with this vision for next year? Are you still beating towards that? Mm -hmm. And then within the quarter, how are you performing? But for the most part, they are working with their leads or um, individual contributors that are working with the customers to really make sure that intraday, intraweek, and intramonth is happening. So I don't want to understate your accomplishments at Gorgeous, and I just, I need to call this out (laughs) Um, because you've been there 
for just under three years. The company has grown from 12 million ARR or so to you're tracking to what, just over 50 million towards the end of this year. Yeah. You got promoted from manager of activation to interim head of success. And then you became head of success and now you're VP. And I worked with Roman, the CEO on a VP, like we were trying to find a VP of success when you were head of success. And, um, you know, of course you'd never done it before and you'd already been promoted so rapidly. So we thought we would bring in somebody from the outside and we came close a couple of times and Roman, Roman always said, yeah, but you know, this person's not better than Elise or at the very <laughs> least for some really senior people, I don't think they're better than Elise would be in a year. And so I, I, I mean, you know, I love Roman and um, I think he's an incredible leader and, and kudos to him for recognizing your talent and developing it and rewarding you and helping you grow into this leader. You also are obviously super smart. You work hard, you're data driven, but you're also, and I want to talk about leadership because I think you do naturally have a knack for motivating people on your team and, and getting buy-in. But I mean, I'm curious, you know, being, being promoted that quickly in that short of a span of time and for the company to have grown that quickly and for you to really be at the helm of this entire department, which is critical to Gorgeous. That's another thing I love about Roman is he knows how important customer success is. Totally. Do you ever... Do you ever get imposter syndrome? I did at the beginning um, because the truth was I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have as much experience as the people around me. Yeah. So that was the truth. And I think anyone who wouldn't have imposter syndrome, if they look around the room <laughs> and everyone else does have more experience than you, is probably a little crazy. Um now I don't. Where I got imposter syndrome was, and I unpacked this actually, I had a coach who did who did such an amazing job. Mm. Um, we would talk about what were scenarios where I felt like maybe I shouldn't speak up as much, right? Where that imposter syndrome did start to kind of seep in. And it came down to like the board meeting, mm. uh, examples where you know, it was people that had a ton of experience and maybe I felt like their expectations of who I should have been should be someone that was more senior and had more experience. Right. Yeah. And so that created kind of this narrative in my head where I was like, well, you know, I feel like they want me to be someone that looks different, talks differently, you know? Um, so that is where I did have imposter syndrome but I can tell you with time um, and showing results, now I would say I don't have imposter syndrome the same way. Great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we talked about numbers. We talked about also like how you like that every day is so different. Um, last time we, I asked you, why do you love your job? And you mentioned those two things, but you also talked a lot about your relationship with Roman. Can you tell me a little bit more? 
part of why I love my job that I hadn't realized earlier on in my career is how much culture and values alignment with um, the CEO, if you're, especially if you're reporting them, Um, but, but with the CEO, even if you're within the company anywhere really matters Um, because they're ultimately when, you know, maybe I didn't have the perfect customer success resume when I started. Um, However, Roman and I work very similarly. Um, We're both very transparent, direct, Mm -hmm. (laughs) honest, um, maybe too honest at times, and then uh, data-driven, right? And so that alignment, I think, did leaps and bounds because our working style is pretty similar. Um, And when he would give me feedback, you know, it wasn't personal or sensitive. It worked really well with how I like to take feedback. Yeah. So I think as a result of that, um, we built a lot of trust and that was probably one of the real contributors for why I was able, um, you know, to have success within this role. Yeah. Well, and he has always been in your corner. For sure. It's so important to have someone that will give you the chance and believes in you Um, you know, some people have a lot of talent, but just never get the chance. Right. So yes, I certainly had the skills, but the luck also of the alignment, um, with culture with him was really important also. And I would say, um, anyone looking for a role, if you want to hockey stick your career, it is important to make sure you are really culturally aligned because that is going to stand for a lot in terms of getting promoted. Yeah. Yeah. And Obviously, I try to coach candidates through interviews and assessing whether or not a role or a company might be a strong fit for them. But it's always never both on the candidate side and also on the company side, like nobody is completely themselves during the interview process. And there's always stuff that gets uncovered later. (laughs) So and I know you're not looking to leave gorgeous, but like. No. (laughs) When one day, I mean, you won't be there forever. When one day you start looking for another job, like what questions would you ask a CEO or would you recommend that other people ask leaders to gauge that alignment? Yeah. How are decisions made? How do you land on strategic initiatives? Tell me an example of a strategic initiative, who decided it, how they decided it. Um, tell me the last time you changed your mind about something, mm. you know, um, and then I think also doing some background checking, like, don't just talk to who your boss is going to be, right. talk to the team. Yeah. Um, so I would say really digging into why and then asking how, 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 um, I think would quickly start to unravel or even like, what are some things you disagree on? Right. Anyone with a healthy relationship with their manager should be able to say, we actively disagree on this, but we still respect each other. And they should be able to articulate what the other person's point of view is and mm. say, I see your side. Right. Um, so I think those are some good questions to start kind of picking apart at the true uh, culture and kind of how decisions are made. Yeah. What are some of your favorite questions to ask people that you're interviewing for your team? 
Oh my, yeah. I was just uh, talking to my partner about this. So I love to start with give me high level, um, a bit about yourself and then why you're applying for this role. I can tell because it's a customer facing role and if it were a data ops role, you know, whatever. Um, it's a different, it's a different story, right? But in customer facing teams, you need someone that is going to hold your attention and be able to speak succinctly and be convincing. So that right there tells me so much, right? Are they understanding their audience? Are they keeping my attention? Right. And will they keep a customer's attention? Mm. Um, Beyond that, what I like to do is then ask about specific examples. Um, So tell me about a time you had too many accounts on your plate. What did you do to stay organized, right? And someone should be able to point out to really tactical things. I um, like, what what do you do? I, I keep a list of notes and I prioritize at the beginning and end of every day. I have time blocks in my calendar, right? Get down really tactical. If they can't get tactical, it's probably not that firm of an organization strategy that they have. Um, or if someone says, I pulled the data for this project. Okay, what data did you pull? What question was it answering? What tools were you using? Tell me about some of the formulas you had to create, right? And I think you can quickly start to understand, one, what level of involvement they had. Um, there's so many people I talk to that will say, Oh yeah, well actually the data team did it, right? Gorgeous. Um, so so I think like starting to really kind of pick apart to understand truly what they did with curiosity, pretty intense curiosity. Um, and then after that, I really like to end with questions that um my favorite is tell me something off your resume, maybe it's a life or childhood, you know, experience that you believe really shapes your values and how you show up to work, mm. right? Because that gives people a chance to tell something off their resume. Maybe they had an experience that was a huge resiliency builder for them. Um, I like to take that into account. Uh, and so I think it's questions like that that will really tell you who they are outside of work mm-hmm. and kind of what values they have and how they'll show up at work. What would your answer to that question be? <laughs> um, great question. <laughs> nice. So, um, yeah, growing up, my mom um, and dad got divorced, as you know, <laughs> happens. And what happened is it taught me the importance of prioritizing um, kind of like happiness over people's perception of you. Mm. And yeah. Also through that, I saw my mom take on a full-time job. Um, You know, we were in Ohio, so there was a lot of gossip about her also. Um, But really, like, kind of just have really strong work ethic. And Um, how old were you when they got divorced? I was nine. And yeah, so so pretty young. Um, But I think seeing that taught me the importance of, like, you depend on yourself. You need to have hard technical skills, right? Because she became an accountant. Um, And then also you need to prioritize your happiness and you're kind of the only person that makes yourself happy. So I'd say those are three things that really show up in how I view work, how I treat work, and probably will always operate within my life. That leads in nicely to 
we talked last time and I didn't record um, <laughs> <laughs> about what makes you successful. So I would say there, there was the right amount of trust with Roman, right? I knew he was cheering for me and I'm in my court. Um, the right amount of hunger also though, because behind the scenes, when you were talking with him to interview other candidates, I mean, you know, that behind the scenes, I was like, I'm going to get this job. (laughs) I would call my mom and be like, okay, so what's the play here? (laughs) Um, so, so there needs to be hunger. And then I think, um, the right amount of trust. Right. But I do also think, um, for me and a lot of people I work with, there is also like this level, I don't want to overstate it and call it, you know, because anxiety is a true um, clinical condition, yeah, but I know it. basically um, there is a healthy level though of something pushing you borderline anxiety that is like, I know I didn't do a good job there. I need to do better. And so for me, what would happen is I would, you know, want to stretch into VP or director, whichever role it was. And when I didn't do a good job, I knew it. Right. And most people do. Yeah. Um, And so, you know, your brain kind of ruminates a bit and you're like, man, I messed that up. I didn't sound good in that meeting. And you can either let that anxiety manifest and fester and kind of go to a negative place, or you can say, okay, well, I, I do have control and other people fortunately don't pay as much attention as you. Right. And you have to remind yourself of that. Yeah, exactly. And, and I can change who I am tomorrow. So if I didn't sound great in that meeting or I didn't do a great job on that analysis, what can I do now to fix it? And so I think it's that healthy balance of channeling your anxiety into action, which then fuels growth. And the best people I work with don't really need feedback because they'll come to me and say, I know what I'm doing wrong mm-hmm. and here's how I'm going to fix it, right? And so I think that is what really fueled um, my promotions because I was able to start seeing my weaknesses before Roman. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think how it's like, how do you make sure you always stay in that healthy mindset and don't operate from a place of insecurity? And I think for me, um, and what a lot of leaders I see do is they have, I call it like the operating system. Um, but it's like, how do I show up to work? So when I get feedback, I take it at face value and I action on it. If I didn't get sleep, if I'm not feeling good about my life, if I'm stressed, I might be like, well, I, you know, get really defensive and that might be my reaction. Whereas yeah. if I've taken care of myself, I go on runs, I'm eating healthy, I can come in more calm and take feedback to really then move it straight to action state. So it's like, how do you take care of your mental health and physical health or, you know, connected as, as we all know, um, to make sure that you come into work in a place where you can grow um, and be confident and have kind of that right level of anxious growth, healthy. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and something that you've mentioned to me before is, is knowing that knowing your worth as a person separate from work. And I think that's, you know, that's something that 
I've certainly struggled with uh, in yeah. the past. And it's, it's easy to, especially if you're working all the time. And I think it is a little bit easier now, our age, you're married, you know, you're pregnant, I have a kid. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's really easy to see beyond what I'm doing for work, but, um, but that wasn't always the case for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think having cognitive distance, um, and again, I think it's having healthy, like having a kid certainly helps. You don't have a choice, right? You're not, you can't think about work at certain hours. Um, so I think having a healthy distance and to your point, this understanding of, I am not my job. Um, I love it. And it is a great thing that provides for me and is a great source, a great passion of mine, but I am not my job and I do have control over it, I think gives uh, me a lot of freedom so that I can operate a little more strategically versus or like just calm and with intention right? Um, versus kind of emotionally. Yeah. And finding that balance is so hard. I work And even for me, like I ebb and flow, right? It's not like I'm cool and calm all the time. Um, But I do think having healthy work-life balance, things outside of work, people that support you, um, and knowing how to take care of yourself for your mental health is just so important for that. Yeah. Tell me about a time when you haven't loved your job. Hmm. I would say, (laughs) actually, when I was in my first trimester of pregnancy, I think with any, I mean, one, there was that I was in my first trimester of my pregnancy, but two, (laughs) 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 it was challenging. Yeah. You can't tell anyone yet. Yeah. So emotionally behind, so think about that, right. I'm telling you right now, like emotionally behind the scenes, I had things going on You're and exhausted. I couldn't run. Sick. Yeah. Like, I'm about just it. yeah. Hungry. yeah. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm worried. So, so behind the scenes, I'm not able to take care of myself as one, Right. but two is um, within the company, like companies go through phases. Right. And with gorgeous, we went from being a startup to, I think it's like 270 people now. And so we're going through this transition where we're like, you know, we're going through puberty. We, we gotta <laughs> like, I love that. That's a great analogy. Yeah, we got it. It's like a little awkward. Things haven't been yeah. figured out yet. Who do you bring along? But now you have to bring along, you know, I have a 70 person team, so we can't just roll out products, right. you know, like three months ago. Um, and so I think in that there can be these points of friction um, where change has to happen, but it hasn't happened fast enough yet. Right. Mm. You really I must drive Roman crazy. Yeah. And even for him, like, if you think about his role, he started as this scrappy, I mean, he's like, he can scrap anything together looks fast. Yeah. And so convincing him like, Hey, you got to move slower and bring people along is really hard too. Yeah. So of course he's on board, but I think it took a long time to explain the pain, uh, like us all to understand how do we find that right balance is still our value of moving fast 
but also or you know operating in this larger world and so i think it there was a point there um you know where there's just moments where it's not my favorite for yeah. a little bit um but i think calling that out and knowing it ebbs and flows um and then also roman gave me feedback like i feel like you had a bad attitude there for a while <laughs> and I, I i think it's true like to some extent, that was a good snap for me to say, okay, I need to change my mindset. Yes. So fortunately, I got to the second trimester and then was able to at least get some good walks. <laughs> and swim it did make a little more sense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, but, you know, like I had to elevate to it. It wasn't yeah. all on the company, right? So I have to change my mindset also. Um, so, so yeah, there's definitely been moments, but typically it's a point in time and it passes and you know, not everything just like relationships and everything is going to be, you know, all perfect. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you talk about like being very self-aware and being able to notice what you need to approve upon before anybody else does and really just kind of fixing it yourself has there ever, because I, I can remember a time in my career very specifically that I tried to do something and I realized it's not in my wheelhouse and I, and I had to be okay with that. Have you yeah. ever tried to get better at something or tried to do something and, and failed? Um, well, first of all, I want to, I want to clarify people definitely notice things before me. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and sometimes it hurts a little bit, but for the most part, it tends to be true. Um, so, but I will say like being able to recognize most yes. is important, like a good portion of it. So people don't have to surface every single thing to you first. Yeah. Um, something I have failed at. Um, yeah. So Recently, I've gotten feedback. I don't speak with a ton of conviction the way that maybe our sales leader does. Mm. And it is something that I've been working on, you know, for years. Um, and I, I want to do it so bad, but I also feel that it's important to speak um, like in terms of how much you know, right? So the sales leader might come in and be like, I'm convinced of this. Whereas I might come in and say, I'm 50% sure. And I, I've always felt that that was important to do. However, I'm finding that over time, I really need to figure out how to be able to speak with conviction um, to motivate the team better. Mm. So I don't think I am that good at uh, speaking with conviction and motivating the way that maybe a traditional like go to market leader might be. So that's something that I wouldn't say I've failed at, but I definitely don't think I do a good job. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I always kind of struggle with that when people, when I talk to candidates that have had similar feedback, like I was working with this one, um, this one guy recently and helping him with his job search and his resume and interviewing and stuff. And he was like, yeah, well, my CEO said, um, and he's a success leader and, uh, he, his counterpart in sales is named 
Um, and she's like, be like, yeah. But, uh, I think, (sighs) what point am I trying to make here? Um, when he, when he was then, when we were doing these mock interviews and I would kind of stop him when he was clearly just in his head and, and couldn't really articulate himself and was clearly getting nervous. And he was like, because I'm trying to be. And, and I was like, stop, don't. And, and, and I think the people that, um, tend to get people to rally around them the most are the people that are authentic. And so, but that's also not to say that you, you can't strive to be different. And I mean, I'll be, I listen to these recordings and I hear like, 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 and so, you know, I'm trying not to say like, so it's like, there I go again. Um, So there's always ways to improve, but I think it's important to not to do that at the expense of your own authenticity and, and, And there's a lot to be said about, too, like, just because one person may think Asif is more, and it is Asif that's still head of sales, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, That Asif is maybe more motivational or or has, (laughs) did you say intelligent? No, compelling. Oh, I was like, (laughs) don't use that with me. Um, but, uh, But, like, that's one person's opinion. For sure. And some sure. people may be identifying with you and not identifying with Asif or might think that he's coming off too strong or is maybe somebody is more um, swayed by your approach of being more skeptical and bringing the data in. Because it's kind of like when when somebody, like those people that like don't talk a lot, but when they say something... It's like, oh, you better listen. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a similar thing. If you're not like, I don't know. Um, Yeah. You're totally, I think you're totally right. And I think that there, just like for anything, like there are scenarios where I'll need to know how to speak with high conviction for the audience that needs it. Right. right? Um, So it's still a skill I feel that, probably no matter what I need. But to your point, even communication and motivation is so subjective. Yes. Um, And different things resonate with different people. Right. And for me, like, if I come in and speak the way that our sales leader does, who's a male, um, that's probably not going to work. Right. So I need to figure out for me what the right balance is of speaking with conviction. Um, Katrina Lake, would speak a lot this, about this a lot um, when she was doing road shows before the IPO for Stitch Fix. And she said that she was getting training to say, to stop, stop speaking so much like a Valley California girl. Yeah. Um, she would say like, and, da, da, da. and she basically started to try to train, to speak more like these CEOs and kind of your typical model of CEO, but that she finally made up her mind that, she was going to continue to say like, and continue to speak like a Valley girl, but just Mm. really know exactly what she was talking about. Um, And so I think I I really like that approach of making sure to your point, you stay authentic, um, but you do, you know, at least nail the talking points. So you're not doing basic things like circling back on what you say, apologizing Mm. too much, et cetera. Yeah. Um, 
But even watching her speak has been a big source of inspiration for me because I think she really finds that right balance of being her true self and authentic. Yeah. Um, but also definitely coming off like she knows exactly what she's talking about and she would yeah. be someone, you know, you'd be confident in investing in. I love that. I'm going to have to look up some of her speaking engagements. Yeah, she's incredible. And, you know, women finally, I mean, it's still... There's still so many inequalities, um, gender-wise and racial-wise and everything. But, um, yeah. but it, yeah, I, I, there's a danger in, in modeling yourself after a man, I think, as a woman. For sure, right? And we don't have a lot of role models um, mm. or, or examples we can pull from. And I think that's why it's so important um, for anyone to have characters on TV, care, you know, people actually in the real world doing that, because once you see someone else do it, it's a lot that looks like you sounds like you, it's yes. so much easier to see yourself in that role, um, and figure out how your identity can sit in that context. Yeah. And the truth is like my identity isn't, you know, and you know, there it's not the typical identity for tech and other people's aren't either. And um, so I think the more diversity we have, the more diversity it will bring. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, and unfortunately that starts at the, at the very bottom, you know, those, those entry level jobs. So I mean, it's yeah. a whole. It's a challenge. challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, I think those are most of the things I wanted to, ask you about let's see i'll look at my notes Ooh, i have a good one okay what's the hardest thing about managing people it changes over time for me it has changed in the very beginning it was having conviction um to know you need to do it this way. Here's why. Mm. Or here are your opportunities. I felt like, who am I to tell someone these are their opportunities, right? I, I, I think they are, but it is pretty subjective, right? Yeah. And I didn't feel, it, I didn't have, I, I was managing a lot of people at the time, um, but I didn't feel like I really had enough experience to know. I had a gut feeling, but- right. That being said, it was, you know, it could be different. So I felt that that was really hard. And I think when it came time to let people go um, in different scenarios, making that decision was really hard too, right? Especially mm. as a newer manager. Yeah. Um, with time, it's become really clear to me because I have more experience where I'm like, no, you do need to do this. You need to do this. Here are the warning signs. And I can call those out really early. And I'm extremely confident in that and I can call out growth areas too. Mm. Um, and it came from experience, I will say. Now what is, so that got easier. What's now hard is truly practicing active listening and stopping yourself from telling people what to do. Mm. When I get a lot of sleep and I don't have a lot of meetings, it's really easy to be present and a true, like, think of it like being a true friend or true coach. Yeah. You need to be present, listen, ask questions, 
um, and kind of play wise, not necessarily telling people what to do. And when you're tired, you got to get things done fast. You are flying, you know, there've been times where I've had 30 hours of meetings within a week. Right. And you get to that last one and you're just like, I don't have time for this. I just need to tell you what to do. So, so making sure that you are able to block your calendar, only take important meetings. I now have a certain threshold. I don't take meetings after that. Um, That way I can show up definitely more Mm. intentional to make sure I'm really showing up for the people around me. So I think that is probably the harder part now. Well, Elise, I know you are so, so busy. Um, are you, um, I'm, I'm in San Francisco next week, by the way. Oh yeah. Wait, when do you, are you here Thursday uh, or Friday? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm there Thursday and Friday. Okay, cool. I'll be in the Marina like Thursday oh, and nice. Friday, like later on. Okay. And I'm getting lunch with Roman at one on Friday downtown. Nice. Okay, cool. So let me just look at my calendar because we're in 2024 planning and meow, meow, meow. But um, yeah, I'll talk to you. Did you just say meow, meow, meow? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Cute. You got the gist of it. Oh, well, thank you so much. Good to see you yeah. always. Of course. Yeah. Stay in touch and let me know. Yeah, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. See ya. Bye. Thank you.